This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The Rise of American Progressivism. In his book, Return to Order, author John Horvat describes a spirit of unrestraint that dominated culture and economy, which he called frenetic intemperance. That spirit took firm root in the United States during the first four decades of the 20th century. These articles were written by Return to Order Moment host and retired history teacher Edwin Benson to explain the stages by which America adopted this frenetic intemperance and its consequence in society. His first article deals with the progressive era at the beginning of the 20th century and focuses on how government became intemperate. If one had to put a date on the birth of frenetic intemperance in the United States government, that date would likely be September 14, 1901. On that dark day, William McKinley, 25th President of the United States, succumbed to the after-effects of a pair of assassins' bullets. Much more than an amiable and courtly man passed from the scene that day. With McKinley passed the structure of government as envisioned by the Founding Fathers and described in the Constitution. At 2.15 that morning, Theodore Roosevelt became president. Even at the distance of over a century, it is difficult to dislike Theodore Roosevelt. Scholar, naturalist, rancher, author, explorer, athlete, historians, statesman, and the involved father of six beautiful children, Roosevelt was a truly impressive man. With all his attainments, he took a childlike delight in life's adventures. British diplomat and longtime friend Cecil Spring Rice famously said, quote, You must always remember that the president is about six. Unquote. Around Roosevelt formed the first American cult of personality since that of George Washington. That cult of personality made it possible for Roosevelt to accumulate power that went far beyond traditional constitutional restraints. Of course, Roosevelt could not have done it by himself, no matter how gifted he was. The atmosphere was ready for him. Citizens in many walks of life resisted the increasing power of gigantic corporations. Workers, farmers, cities, and many state legislators were, or at least believed themselves to be, under the control of quote-unquote captains of industry who were fabulously wealthy. A new political ideology called progressivism taught that only the national government had the power to put limits on the quote-unquote malefactors of great wealth, as well as corrupt political machines. Progressives especially targeted railroads and banks, often arguing that the national government should heavily regulate, if not actually own, those industries. The idea took hold that a giant could only be controlled by an even bigger giant. Just as they do today, progressives had allies in the press. A new type of journalist, dubbed muckrakers, specialized in seeking out and publicizing abuses in business and corruption in big city governments. By using highly descriptive prose, they were able to attract the interest of the general public to issues that had always been decided behind closed doors, or ignored altogether. An important example concerned the meatpacking industry. 
In a traditional world, those who did not raise their own meat purchased it from local butchers, who had in turn purchased the animals from local farmers. It was possible for the customer to actually know the farmer who raised and the butcher who processed the steak on his dinner table. Meatpacking was one of the first businesses to be industrialized. Within a few years, that same customer would eat meat that was raised near Dallas, sold in Abilene, processed in Chicago, even if he lived in Buffalo. The traditional system was highly regulated, even though the government had nothing to do with it. A farmer who sold a diseased cow to a butcher would never be trusted again. A butcher who sold his customer rancid meat would soon find himself without customers. It was a simple idea. Regulate yourself or go out of business. Under the new system, there was little effective regulation. The owner of a huge meatpacking house barely knew his employees, much less the suppliers or customers. If a sick cow got into the pens, the packing house had a significant incentive to pass it on to a consumer who would probably never know the difference and would not be missed by the company if he did. It was a situation tailor-made for abuse. Enter the muckraker, Upton Sinclair. Wanting to write about the plight of industrial workers, his book, The Jungle, horrified readers with graphic descriptions of the way the ham on their table got there. Famously, Sinclair quipped, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. Unquote. A horrified public turned to Roosevelt, who was only too happy to expand government power into this most intimate part of the American home. To meet the public demand, Roosevelt played a major role in passing the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. These laws, in turn, became the nucleus of the Food and Drug Administration. This was not Roosevelt's only victory. Railroad freight rates, the wages of coal miners, the number of competitors in the steel industry, and many others felt the new weight of federal government regulation. In a frenetic burst of energy, Roosevelt's Department of the Interior took over control of 230 million acres of land, mostly in the West. The adverse effect on landowners and on those who legally used those acres went unnoticed. Those who denounced Roosevelt's extra-constitutional actions were likely to be seen as the stooges of big business. The general public found these issues far less interesting than Roosevelt's latest hunting trip, frolics with his children, or his plunge in the Navy's experimental submarine. To many, Teddy was the government, and they liked and trusted him. Finally, the calendar ran out on Roosevelt. On March 4, 1909, he turned over power to a new president. The new man, William Howard Taft, had been hand-picked by Roosevelt. All the public did was to ratify Roosevelt's choice. No president since Andrew Jackson had been so popular at the end of his presidency as to be able to do that. Taft was no Roosevelt. But there are historians who argue that Taft actually accomplished more progressive action than Roosevelt did. Eventually, though, Roosevelt turned on Taft, citing his supposed abandonment of progressive values. 
Roosevelt wanted to be in control of the presidency again, and the facts didn't matter. When Taft didn't retreat, the two of them split the Republican Party. This cleared the way for the election of the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson, with the look and speech of the cool academic that he was, didn't have Roosevelt's hold on the affections of the public either. It didn't matter. After Roosevelt, personality was no longer necessary to move the country in a progressive direction. Roosevelt helped the nation buy into the basic idea that frenetic government action was more trustworthy than frenetic big business. Ignored was the fact that the frenetic intemperance of big government could also come to control small business, small towns, and even individuals. It was a mistake that the public would make over and over again for the rest of the century. Later incarnations of the progressives are still making it and are trying to force the public to make it too. Edwin Benson's second article deals with the growing rejection of traditional moral limitations in American society at the beginning of the 20th century and the unforeseen effect of World War I. In the first two decades of the 20th century, frenetic intemperance in the United States was largely seen in the expansion of government power beyond the limits spelled out in the Constitution. At the same time, frenetic intemperance was taking on another form, as ancient standards of Christian morality were broken down. This growing rejection of traditional moral limitations can be traced to three sources— the rapid growth of American cities, the popularity of motion pictures, and an unforeseen effect of World War I. Rapid industrialization brought with it the rapid growth of the city. The world before the automobile was a world in which one needed to walk to work. The worker's home needed to be as near his workplace as physically possible. The then common 12-hour workday left him with little energy for a long walk home. The farm villages in which many of those workers had been raised were insular places. Most people spent their time surrounded by people to whom they were closely related. Most of the work on the family farm was done by the family itself. Church and school needed to be close to the farm because most travel was done at speeds of less than five miles per hour. That meant that one only knew a small number of families. For children, fellow students were also those they saw at church. The parents of your friends were also the friends of your parents, and often their relatives as well. When the time came to choose a spouse, chances were very good that the two young people had known each other since childhood. Social standards were well known, as were the consequences of violating them. Life in a city, or even a factory town, was very different. Hundreds of men might work in a single factory. That meant that hundreds of families occupied less space than a single farm. Since such factories were also magnets for immigrants, one's neighbors might have been born in another country. Your parents might not even speak the same language as the parents of your friends. In this new world, it was often the young who were better able to function successfully. This, in turn, disrupted the process by which traditional values were passed from the elder to the younger members of society. 
social rules were more complex, and the consequences of deviation were less certain. The popularity of motion pictures sped up these social changes. Within both the town and the city, motion pictures became an important, perhaps dominant, form of entertainment. Today it is difficult to look at the grainy black and white movies of the silent era and grasp their significance. However, they were a potent force in altering the morality of a generation. First, they were cheap. Even a worker subsisting on a dollar a day could squeeze out a nickel once a week to escape the gray world of the industrial town for a few hours. Second, they were passive. It is easy to see a movie. Previous forms of entertainment required some effort. Playing a musical instrument, some test of manual ability like shooting or wrestling, or a display of mental agility as in a game of cards or dominoes. To enjoy a movie, all one has to do is sit and let it sweep over you. Third, they were viewed in the dark. The city offered few places in which one could feel a sense of privacy. Home, work, school, and the streets were all places where large numbers of people occupied a small space. The dark, relatively cool movie theater offered an individual or a couple a sense of being alone, or at least of being anonymous. However, the most important aspect of the movies was the message contained in the films themselves. The twin capitals of the early movie industry were New York and Paris. To the viewer of silent films, it made little difference where or in which language the film was actually made. French subtitles could be taken out, and English or German subtitles added without difficulty. Thus, films easily transferred cultural images across the Atlantic. No matter the side of the Atlantic on which the movie was made, the message was similar and usually non-traditional. The main actors in the films, then and now, were people with a high degree of physical attractiveness. This created a standard of beauty which most could never attain, but to which many aspired. Unattractive characters in film were usually objects of humor or disgust. Another common area between early and modern film was the fact that most of those attractive actors behave with moral abandon. An intemperate life featuring late hours, loud and well-lubricated parties, and an often unseen but very deep source of money to pay for it all are standard fare for the movies, then and now. Finally, another highly significant cause of the moral intemperance of the 20th century America was the unprecedented nature of World War I and the reaction of American soldiers to it. Officially, the United States joined the war in April of 1917. By that time, it had been going on for two and a half years. The land war in France had become bogged down in stalemate. The two sides were entrenched in such a way that neither side could effectively move the other. Life in those trenches was basically life in an open sewer. Unprotected from the elements, they were often cold and always damp. 
vermin of various types infested them. There was no place to eat, sleep, or attend to normal bodily functions in any way that could be called civilized. Humans literally lived like rats. Then there was the horror of shelling. The only way that one side could inflict damage on the enemy without inviting massive casualties of its own was to use mortars to lob explosive shells into the enemy trenches. Since there was no way to know which area of the enemy trenches was occupied at any time, shelling became an inhuman numbers game. A shell would be lobbed into one part of the opposing trench. Then the mortar would be adjusted to send another shell into another part of the trench. This would be repeated over and over again. Day and night, the explosions continued. Clearly, this form of warfare was very unlike the traditional warfare of battling knights or daring cavalry charges. To many, there often seemed to be no place for courage, bravery, or even humanity. The only rule seemed to be survival. This was the world into which about two million American men found themselves in the latter half of 1917. Many, perhaps most, of these men had never ventured more than 20 miles from home in their lives. Their training was the first time they met a person from another part of the country. Within six months, they found themselves in an inhuman and brutal world where seeing others explode in a shell blast was nothing unusual. Then one morning, it ended. Past wars usually ended gradually. Armies moved across territory toward the enemy's capital. Both victor and vanquished knew the direction in which the war was moving long before the end came. It was not so in World War I. Unbeknownst to the soldier in the trenches, the end of the war was being decided by German civilians, starved by a British naval blockade. The Kaiser was overthrown, and the government that replaced him agreed to an armistice. At 11 o'clock on the morning of November 11, 1918, the war was suddenly over. Now the world of the doughboy changed drastically once again. It took months to return those two million men to America. In the meantime, on the streets of Paris, they experienced a life that most had only seen in the movies. The hedonistic nature of Parisian society was established by the quote-unquote Enlightenment and the French Revolution more than a century earlier. Flowing wine, suggestive music, lurid theater, and easily obtained pornography were available there well before the war began. These American men once again found themselves in a world they could not have imagined when growing up on their father's farms. Additionally, the deaths of over a million Frenchmen left many French women trying to work out a future. American soldiers with the Mademoiselle on their arms became a common sight. Eventually, all those young men, knowledgeable far beyond their years, did get back home. Only two years older than when they had left, they returned to families and farms that were largely untouched by the war. To their parents, they looked the same as when they left and spoke with the same voices but they were very different men indeed. 
The extent and nature of the change varied with the individual. Many were supremely grateful to return to their familiar homes. Others were shell-shocked and would carry the mental scars of their horrible experiences for the rest of their lives. Many who lived the nightmare of the trench and the liberty of Paris returned with no sense of God or morality. Those two million men would return to an America where urbanization and the movies made many of their generation receptive to the intemperate lessons they had learned in Bella Wood and Paris. The Roaring Twenties would be the result. The third article illustrates the way that the Great Depression contributed to the advancement of the restless spirit of frenetic intemperance, and especially to the increase in power of the executive branch of the federal government. Until October 29, 1929, the Roaring Twenties were awash in optimism. The Republicans' 1928 candidate for president, Herbert Hoover, caught that spirit with the words, quote, we shall soon, with the help of God, be within sight of the day when poverty shall be banished from this nation. Unquote. Most of the few who think about Herbert Hoover today see him as a hidebound conservative. This is highly ironic. That reputation was largely crafted by Franklin D. Roosevelt and his followers to make Hoover a punching bag to build support for the far-reaching laws that will be discussed later. As Hoover's actions were reanalyzed by historians less spellbound by Roosevelt's oratory, it is becoming increasingly more obvious that Hoover was in fact more a progressive in the mold of Woodrow Wilson than a Calvin Coolidge conservative. Hoover had been a poor orphan, his parents both died before he was eight, who made a fortune as a mining engineer. When World War I broke out, Hoover, then 39, left his engineering practice to run an organization funneling food into Belgium. When the United States entered the war, President Wilson made Hoover the head of the U.S. Food Administration. In both roles, Hoover's reputation soared. Trumpeting Hoover's rags-to-riches story, he was referred to in the press as the great humanitarian and the great engineer. His fame and the fact that he had been nominally Republican before the war enabled Hoover to remain in government after the Republican Warren Harding won the election of 1920. Harding named him Secretary of Commerce, a post that he continued to hold under Calvin Coolidge after Harding's death. Hoover was an activist in the otherwise more restrained Coolidge administration. Coolidge himself is supposed to have referred to Hoover derisively as Wonder Boy. Hoover's prediction about the end of poverty was not mere political ballyhoo, but was based on a thoroughly developed political philosophy. That philosophy was actually based on quote-unquote enlightenment ideas. He was something of an heir of the English philosopher Adam Smith. To put it simply, Hoover saw economics as a scientific process, which he and other great minds had mastered. By applying that process, prosperity could be guaranteed in perpetuity. On the surface, he was a proponent of laissez-faire, the idea that the government's role in the economy was to leave it alone and let the economy work. In practice, Hoover was more than willing to use government regulation to make sure it worked properly. 
Hoover's superficial reputation as a conservative became popular as Franklin Roosevelt, aided by Hoover's own lack of ability in public relations, cast the great engineer as the demon of the Depression. It was under the presidency of Franklin D. Roosevelt that the root of frenetic intemperance, planted by his distant cousin Theodore and tended by Wilson and Hoover, really bloomed under the guise of the New Deal. All restraint to executive action was thrown off. Every progressive idea that was not passed into law before World War I was dusted off and rushed into law. Roosevelt's quote-unquote brain trust, a group of liberal scholars drawn primarily from Harvard and Columbia universities, proposed sweeping new ideas of their own. They were rushed into law by a Congress that could hardly wait to do FDR's bidding. Historians, both those sympathetic and critical of Roosevelt, see him as an experimenter who was willing to try any idea that promised to help end the Great Depression. Philosophy and ideology yielded to expediency in the Roosevelt administration. The one strain that unites the New Deal was an increase in power of the executive branch of the federal government. An attempt to list the entire raft of New Deal programs would be far outside the scope of this article. Partial lists can be found in any good American history textbook. However, the all-inclusive spirit of the time can be seen by examining the capstone of Roosevelt's first hundred days in office, the National Recovery Administration, NRA. The NRA attempted to draft, quote-unquote, Codes of fair competition for every industry in the country. What the drafters of those codes meant by fair competition was actually the establishment of highly regulated cartels. In this new order, government would control all industrial behavior. This would include production, distribution, pricing, and especially the relationship between employers and employees. Labor unions, a very important constituency for Roosevelt, were imposed on all industries. Wages and working conditions became integral parts of the codes because the long-cherished idea of many progressives was that quote-unquote cutthroat competition was one factor that drove wages down. A regulated marketplace would be the harbinger of prosperity for all. The second head of the NRA, Donald Richburg, summed up the attitude, quote, Unless industry is sufficiently socialized by its private owners and managers so that great essential industries are operated under public obligation appropriate to the public interest in them, the advance of political control over private industry is inevitable, unquote. Left unsaid was the fact that Richburg's ultimatum really left no choice at all, except whether socialism would be voluntary or mandatory. So far-reaching was the NRA that the Supreme Court unanimously found it to be unconstitutional when a New York chicken butcher illegally allowed a customer to choose the chickens he wished to buy instead of following the random process that the code demanded. The administration responded by demanding, quote-unquote, reform of the Supreme Court and by having its allies in Congress draft and pass new laws that embodied important parts of the NRA. Among these laws was, quote-unquote, Labor's Magna Carta, the Wagner Act. 
Many of these new laws were allowed by the court in part because several of its members died or resigned and were replaced by Roosevelt appointees. Eventually, Roosevelt appointed eight justices during his 12 years in the White House. Two of those justices would still be on the court 25 years after Roosevelt's death. It was Roosevelt's fate to be president during the two great crises of the early 20th century, the Great Depression and World War II. Both gave him ample opportunity to recast the government in his own progressive image and advance the restless spirit of frenetic intemperance that overthrew traditional restraints. The consequences still redound in the politics of the early 21st century. This concludes The Rise of American Progressivism. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or to find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.